Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Run. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. We're going to have a great show for you today, as usual. This is our last show for now out of Washington, D.C. We should be back in Houston on Monday. Thank you so kindly for, uh, for dealing with some of the mishaps that we've had over this period. But as you know, when you're going mobile, sometimes you get into some issues. Thank you so kindly again. Bridge MCP, welcome aboard AVQ. Michael Rutten, thank you guys all for being here. We are going to have a great show. Hey, think about this, folks. Think about this. For a long time, we've had those people on the right trying to tell us something very important. Oh, we should go ahead and follow the Sweden model. The Sweden model. Let's have herd immunity. Herd immunity will work. And if, if we just protect the older people and make sure that everybody who possibly could get infected, let them get infected. Well, guess what Sweden has realized? Sweden has just realized that, oh my God, we've made a big mistake. They've been kind of queuing that for some time now, but they are officially saying now, we made a mistake and what are we doing now? We are going into some sort of a modified lockdown. We are making sure until from now until February that things are going to be different. So, oh my God. Uh, Nanette Bird-Smith, thank you so kindly for being here. My daughter is, uh, you know, we, every day we work on, on, on getting better. Uh, uh, so um, my wife will be here as I take off to kind of assist her in moving forward again. But we will always make sure that... Um, our girl is in good shape. And I know my great guys out there, you guys are going to make sure to uh, keep the positive affirmations out from my baby. But I know you guys are out there for me. Anyhow, folks, uh, look, uh, Paulette Stansel, welcome aboard. Wow. Uh, I like those hand claps. I like those hand claps. Anyhow, yeah. So the, the model that Sweden thought they were following was one that said the following. They said, we are going to allow the infection to run rampant. The infection to run rampant. Because what's going to happen is if enough people get this infection, they would have immunity to this disease. But people forgot one uh, immunological thing that, was, that, that they have no answers for. Numero uno. If somebody gets the disease the, the old-fashioned way, are they sure that getting the disease the old-fashioned way ensures that that person has immunity. If that person has immunity, for how long? So it is utterly irresponsible to create some sort of natural herd immunity. Whenever you hear doctors uh, or immunologists talk about, uh, 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 about herd immunity, what they're talking about is the amount of people in the herd that's been vaccinated, right? Norman Reynolds, welcome aboard. That's what they mean. And having been vaccinated, assume that they are of good certainty that that vaccinated population is really immune to the disease. By having this, this far part herd immunity, you don't know if those who have been infected really have developed true immunity. And if they have developed true immunity, for how long? We don't know that. So having such a policy makes absolutely no sense. And that is what our great fur has been trying to push with the new quack that he has as his suggested doctor. Well, Sweden, the model that they wanted to follow, Sweden, the people that they were listening to and like to use as an example, in several shows past have pointed out that Sweden's economy has fared worse than those, those, those countries in the European Union who've actually done a full shutdown at times, including, let's say, places like Italia, Italy, etc. So uh, we know that. And that is what's so important, that we have ineptitude in policymaking. Now what we have is 
are the president trying to overturn the election? But I tell you what, let's go ahead and go into the show and start talking about what it's going to be. Today, I'm going to have a, a, a somebody that I played a, a while back. A lot of you that are here today probably haven't heard him before, but this would be a second playing of this uh, Mauro Guillen. Mauro Guillen on 2030. Democrats must engage Trump now. Journalist slams Jim Crow GOP. Now, Professor Mauro Guillen talks about 2030 expectations. Representative urges uh, Democrats to engage journalists out GOP Jim Crow. Okay, so the three topics. The first, the first tape that we're going to show here is uh, the one with Eugene Roberts Robinson. You mean Eugene Robinson? He has an excoriation for the president and the GOP, and he pretty much is saying people of color has no uh, that the GOP. While we would have liked both the parties to to tr attempt to woo every identity, at this point in time, the Republican Party has shown the despise that they have for those people of color who have no intentions of... Well, listen to Eugene. Eugene does it better than most. He's a Pulitzer-winning uh, Pulitzer guy. Now, there's a little bit of echo on this, so forget that. forgive that for me. I have never seen this columnist like this before, Eugene Robinson. Eugene Robinson, however, was so right in what he's talking about. What Donald Trump and his cabal, the Republicans throughout this country, are attempting to do is the reinstitution of Jim Crow in the way they're act at their they're actually attacking the electoral process in this in this country, the way they are attacking cities, the way the way they are attacking areas with predominantly uh, people of color, with predominantly black folk, Latino, etc. Listen to what uh, Robinson had to say. He said it in the most concise fashion. It, it is just, just outrageous. I, I just want to talk about how outrageously racist what Donald Trump and, and is doing now and what the Republican Party uh, is acquiescing in and actively supporting, aiding and abetting. Um, this, this is out of the Jim Crow playbook. They're trying to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of mostly African-American voters in Milwaukee in Detroit, in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, the cities they're so concerned about in Pennsylvania, in the state of Georgia, where there was good black turnout, in the Atlanta area, in Savannah. This is the kind of thing. They're, they're trying to throw out those votes. Basically, they're trying to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of black voters. And look, Donald Trump is a racist. is not, you know, breaking news. But the fact that the Republican Party in its entirety, with a few exceptions, like Secretary of State Raffensperger, the Republican Party is going along with this and, and acquiescing and saying, oh, well, the president has, has every right to pursue every legal option and refusing to stand up to this nakedly racist tactic and, and serious attempt to get black votes thrown out is just outrageous and disgusting and shameful and it's something that we should we should not just look past it we should never forget i think i mean maybe you know i've always thought that it would be good 
for African Americans if both major parties really competed for our votes. It would be good for the community. Yeah. Uh, and maybe some future Republican Party will do that. But these Republicans are are advocating the right to even pretend to do that anymore because of the way they're acting right now. It is just shameful. It is just shameful. And what there's something profound that he said right now he said it would be great if there were two parties competing for the black vote competing for the vote of any particular identity because what that does is that prevents any party from being able to take any particular identity whether it be women gays blacks latinos for granted but at this point gene is absolutely correct the the republican party presents a clear and present danger for people of color clear and present danger for women a clear and present danger for anyone who doesn't conform and if you doubt it just remember what uh lindsey graham said a few times several times he've said it and where he said it is okay to be uh, it is okay to be uh, black or or whatever in Georgia in the South, as long as you are a conservative. Think about think about the messaging that this party is starting to put out there. The messaging that this party is all about. What? this party, the Republican Party, represents in today's America a clear and present danger for most. And if you doubt the reason why they continue to be a minority party, unable to win the popular vote, that's the reason. That is exactly the reason why they are unable to win the popular vote but again because america is really not a democracy because of the constitutional aberration that's not important because they can still win but the chances are dwindling over and over again they're over it's not a possibility that it's going to last forever as not only our demographics but the intellect of the average american citizen uh who allow themselves to of course goes up Anyhow, as you know, right now, Donald Trump is trying to find all kinds of ways to, to uh, see if he can force a Senate, leg a Senate legislature here to send an alternate set of electors to put him in the office, even though he has lost the, the vote. I mean, uh, it, it, it is, it, it's foolhardy, but he, give, he has a tendency to believe it could work. Look, it won't work. Uh, Biden will be the next president. What is working, however, is the more he keeps this up, the more the people on the right, as I think I, I spoke to uh, Norman Reynolds about this a few, uh, a few days ago, I believe, is they have, they have the feeling that there is still hope. They believe that there's still hope that their fewer could win. They believe that El Senor, El Senor uh, Trump somehow will be able to pull it out. And as he continues to go back and forth, the legitimacy of the race to those people, look, look, the, the vast majority, 80 million of us, know for a fact that the race was just fine. But there are so many 
who will use this as an excuse that their guy lost to believe somehow that this isn't right and that these guys are fighting so hard may give them some sort of an impetus to believe, oh, it must be, it must be rigged. Anyhow, one of the reasons that can go by is Democrats continue to be so silent in the aggregate. The leaders have been so silent as opposed to really pointing out realities. How the hell, Trump, can you really think that you've won? When your House Republicans did very well, you didn't, but House Republicans did very well. Are you saying that our tricks, tricks decided to vote for Biden, but then vote for you guys? No, here's a deal that, that, that you find hard to believe. You were rejected not only by Democrats and independents, you were also rejected by Republicans because they voted for representatives while they voted against you. So if you're trying to say the election is rigged, it was an interesting kind of rigging because Republicans, uh, Congress people did very well. Republican senators did very well, but Donald Trump didn't. Let's, I think it's time that you lived up to the reality that a piece of the nail in the coffin of Donald Trump's election or lack of lack thereof to become a second term president wasn't solely at the hands of Democrats, but also at the hands of, at the hands of Republicans who didn't pull the lever for you as they pulled the lever for their Republican Congress person. Remember that. And you know uh, who is really starting to say it's time for Democrats to talk out? Check this out. Congresswoman Jackie Speer has a, an important point to make. And I tell you what, it has to do with messaging. It has to do with the assertion of power. Let's listen to her and then we'll take it on the other side. This president now is doing everything in his power to become a tin pot dictator. He is trying to throw out an election. He is trying to replace people who do not follow his script with people who will be yes men. And we are losing our democracy in, in our front of our eyes right now. Um, and as Democrats, frankly, I don't think we're speaking up loud enough. Um, I think that President-elect Biden needs to take um, the kid gloves off now and start pushing back. And that may, in fact, require him to go to court. But this now is reckless. Donald Trump has lost the election by 7 million votes and by 72 electoral votes. He cannot somehow suggest that he can become the president-elect under those circumstances. He's lost. He's a loser. And it's time for him to suck it up and recognize that he's going to be kicked out January 20th. And his responsibility now is to protect our country and to give the new president-elect all of the tools and resources he needs in order to prepare for his inauguration and taking the reins of power on January 20th. This is important because right now, everybody from the media to the Democratic Party, to the Republican Party, they're all sitting back, waiting for Donald Trump to concede, waiting to see what Donald Trump's next move is gonna be. We don't give a damn what Donald Trump's next move is gonna be. What we care about is what is going to be the new, the new presidency of Joe Biden and nothing else. To give the power to a loser, as she mentioned, Donald Trump is the loser. 
Donald Trump has lost the election. He has lost the election by a landslide in popular vote and a landslide according to even his definition in the Electoral College. There should be no more concern, no more talk about whether Donald Trump is going to steal the election because there, that is not a possibility that will be allowed or should give anybody the impression that it's allowable. Right now, Donald Trump is, in, is inching on his own base to believe they have the possibility, that there just may exist a possibility that this man can stay in power. The more we leave that messaging out there, that maybe there's a possibility, some people will gravi gravitate towards that. The reality is we have to come out now and let it be known that, that Biden will be taking power and that Democrats and all those who support Biden will be there ready to embrace that and that and we care nothing about what Donald Trump has to say. The problem is we have given this paper tiger more power than he is than he deserves. We have allowed this paper tiger to, to actually talk the narrative and give the impression like a TV show that he has any sort of control over this system. He does not, and it's time for Democrats to spine up and make it clear to the country from every single elected Democratic official, every single Democratic executive. It is important that this is said, this is placed into the ethos, and the messaging makes it clear. Donald Trump is a loser who is going out of the White House on January 20th out of the office on January 20th. Okay, folks, uh, Nanette, uh, let's see. Nanette, I, I, I need to look that up for you, don't I? As far as what's the best pl place to donate for Georgia. I, I am not sure. Let me make sure that I find something reputable there. Uh, Daniel Ledo wants to know, why don't I want election integrity? Are you kidding me, Daniel? Common sense, common sense. Republicans did well in the House races. In the same ballots that, that brought House seats new house seats to republicans on those same ballots they fired donald trump there were a lot of you see the problem is it, within the within the, the the trump clown house within the trump cult you guys have a feeling that somehow the rest of the world thinks about that heathen the way you guys do many of our evangelical leaders that love this guy somehow have the belief that the rest of america that the rest of the world think positive of donald trump donald trump to the rest of the world is a joke donald trump to the rest of the world is a loser donald trump to the rest of the world as far as his intellect is concerned is a dummy that is how the rest of the world views him because that is who he is he lacks the intellect to be president of the united states he accidentally became president because of an anarchism within the, 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 the Constitution, because of an aberration in the Constitution that allows something like this to occur. But remember, the rest of the world, much smarter, understands that what we have in the White House is an aberration. Let's, let's remember that. That is extremely important to understand. No doubt about it. Uh, let's see. Let me go ahead and welcome my people here. Um, welcome, Deborah Stubbs. Welcome aboard. Uh, Nanette Birdsmith, British MCP, Daniel Lado. Uh, let's see. Nanette Birdsmith. Just me. How are you doing? Just me. Uh, who else is here? Uh, bear with me as I scroll down. Uh, Michael Rodnin, Tank 28. Uh, Mark Smith from London. Welcome aboard. 
Uh, let's see. Who else is here? Bear with me as, uh, let's see, I'm coming down the pike. Oh, of course, Norman Reynolds, and there's Paulette Stancil, uh, an AVQ. Anyway, thank you guys for all being here. Uh, Daniel Ledo just comes back at me and he says, I think Egberto is having trouble distinguishing media propaganda and reality. Actually, no, we understand not only media propaganda, but we also understand, and welcome aboard Spain, we also understand that Donald Trump is a crook. We also understand that Donald Trump, for all those who believe in Donald Trump, he has done a great job in convincing you. It's our job to try to remove that, that cancer, you know, and we will eventually do it because the, the, the thing about Donald Trump, he's very good at putting his foot in his mouth. The problem is when people have put their vested interest in somebody like him, it takes them a while before they, are, before they can get up the courage to say, I erred, I made a mistake, forgive me, I need, I've seen the light. Donald Trump is an evil being. Donald Trump is a fraud. Donald Trump got exactly what he deserved as he's going to lose this election by seven to eight million, seven to eight million votes. That's a landslide. That's an aberration. Or rather, that's a landslide. That's not an aberration. The word that I want to use, that's, that, that's a, that just shows how much he isn't wanted as the leader. That shows that most Americans understand that he doesn't, that we don't want him. It's a repudiation of the evil one. But anyhow, let's talk, let's talk to Senor Mauro Guillen, and then we'll take it on the other side after that uh, interview. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. I'm here with Mauro F. Guillen. He's a Spanish-American sociologist, political economist, management educator, Zanman professor at the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania, and director of Penn Lauder Center for International Business Education and Research. He was the Anthony L. Davis Director of the Joseph H. Lauder Institute of Management at International Studies from 2007 to 2019. Guillen graduated in 1987 from the University of Oviedo in his native Spain with a BA degree in political economy and business management. He came to the United States in 1987 to pursue a PhD in sociology sponsored by the Bank of Spain and the Fulbright program he graduated from Yale, Ivy League University in 1992. Professor Guillen is the author of the new book that everyone must get, 2030, how today's biggest trends will collide and reshape the future of everything. Professor Guillen, welcome to Politics Done Right. Thank you so much, Egberto, for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, look, when I, when I got your info, I said, you know, this is, this is right in line with a lot of what we cover here on Politics Done Right. And I really wanted to pick your brain because you are one of those forward thinkers, uh, something that is dearly missing, not only here in the United States, but throughout the world. Um, I want to start with, uh, first with, with an article that I read uh, somebody that wrote about your book, and I want to read the first paragraph. It says, some crises are clear turning points in history. Disruptions like the Black Death of the 1300s or the Great Depression of the 1930s, where everything before is swept aside and a new order emerges. But coronavirus pandemic, that is not one of those times, argues Wharton professor Mauro Guillen, author of 
the book we just mentioned, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Please explain that to me because I, 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 let me tell you, that is sort of anathema to me, right? When I saw the pandemic, I really said history would have changed. And whereas you don't think it's as bad as the depression or would be as change drive driven as the depression, please give me the reason why you don't think it would be that absolute. So, Egberto, you're absolutely correct in that some of your listeners may be wondering how is this different from what happened 100 years ago with the uh, influenza pandemic or right. the Great Depression and so on and so forth. And the key difference is that this time around, what we're seeing is, for the most part, an acceleration of pre-existing trends. Okay, So e-commerce wasn't something that we invented in the last five months, but the pandemic has accelerated that. Okay. Uh, remote work. That's something also that we were already experimenting with, but the pandemic made it go through the roof, okay, in terms of how many workers here in the United States are now working from home, and I guess you and I are among them. Mm -hmm. And then the other big thing is that it also accelerates some longer-term trends, like think about population aging, right? Very soon we're going to have more grandparents than grandchildren. That makes a big difference. Well, the pandemic is also going to accelerate that because when people lose their jobs or when they see that there's a lot of uncertainty, they postpone having babies. And as they postpone having babies, and perhaps in some cases they never have them, then the population also grows older much faster. So acceleration of trends. So in other words, the future is going to arrive much sooner as a result of this pandemic. That's the whole point. Now, so let me, let me give some context to that. Uh, what would you what what would you say let's say let's take the the, the great depression as i don't want to use the the the, uh, the flu the past flu as an example but i want to use the depression as an example the depression showed us that we needed to have a whole lot of social structures socioeconomic structures to mitigate what let's say capitalism how capitalism functions now uh when it comes to what the pandemic shows i think here in america not necessarily in the european countries because they are much better prepared with a good socioeconomic state uh, how would you say uh, it would change America proper? Uh, wouldn't it be much bigger, let's say, in what we what we see as a dependence on government than what occurred in, in let's say, the 1930s? Yeah, so that's a, that's a, a wonderful question to ask. Uh, and you're putting your finger on what I think might be a parallel between what happened in the 1930s and what happens this time around, in the sense that we're going to see the government playing a bigger role. Uh, today, as you know, in the papers everywhere, we see this headline that for the first time, debt in the United States, the national debt, has exceeded the size of the economy, gross domestic product, right? Amazing, yes. so that's a milestone that's important. But let me give you another specific example. The pandemic will lead to more automation. And we know that because, uh, you know, to maintain social distancing, companies are putting in machines or they're putting in uh, automatic uh, checkout registers at stores and so on and so forth to avoid contact. Okay, as a result of that, then maybe we will have more technological unemployment. So what's the solution to that? Well, the solution to that is perhaps a universal basic income. So I'm not necessarily advocating for it. In fact, I have some misgivings about a universal basic income. But unlike before the pandemic, now the discussion, the debate about a universal basic income paid by the government to every citizen is now part of the mainstream. It's no longer something that only radical people would propose. 
So you're absolutely correct. There are some parallels. I think in the 1930s, the government in the United States, in Europe, came to play a more important role. And I think something very similar is going to happen again in the wake of this pandemic. There was a reason why you're here. That is a, such a very uh, important answer that you just gave there, because I, I think uh, you've 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 shared something that I think many don't see immediately. Uh, during during the last forty years, we have had a huge increase in productivity, mm-hmm. and that has parallel that has not paralleled an increase in wages to take advantage of that productivity. Now you're talking about automation, auto, uh, further automation, trucks driving themselves, uh, factories even more automated. That means a much, uh, even a much greater increase in productivity, which means if it doesn't go to the people, again, it, is yet, it, it yet plays into the income disparity, wealth, wealth, uh, wealth disparity in the country. I think you're acknowledging or you're stating that in effect, society is going to have to change now, how in the type of mentality, in a capitalist mentality that permeates the United States more so than Europe or any other country in the world, how are we going to set, how are we going to make it possible to change the psyche, not only of the pure capitalists in this country, but let's say of the people in the country who have come to believe that only this model works? Well, I think, uh, let me make uh, three very quick points about this. And again, I think this is a very important question that I think all of us should be asking ourselves right now. So number one, we were in a crisis here in this country 12 years ago, and the crisis originated from the financial sector, if you remember. And without the swift intervention of both the government and the Federal Reserve, we wouldn't have been able to weather that crisis. How do we know that? Well, look, in Europe, the, the crisis, if you remember, lasted longer and was deeper. And the reason was that the governments in Europe and the central bank didn't intervene as strongly, as swiftly. Okay, so that's the first point. Uh, The second point I think uh, that is really important is, of course, everything is subject to politics, right? And we have two camps here in the United States. One of them, most of the time, but not always, is in favor of reducing the size of the government. And the other is most of the time more in favor of having the government play a key role. So I think, uh, you know, thinking in terms of the election that is coming up, this has not yet been put in such stark terms as I'm doing it now. But I think implicit in some of the proposals by the two candidates, we're seeing that there is a political debate going on as to what is the proper role of the government, right, of the state, uh, of the federal state, in, or the federal government in the, in the United States when it comes to coping with this, with this crisis, right? And then the third point that I would like to mention, going back to the extremely important remark that you made about inequality, this crisis is accelerating inequality, okay? So people with less education, they cannot work remotely. They have to go to work. If they go to work, they have to use public transportation. So they're more exposed to the virus. And we also know that minorities such as African-Americans and Hispanics, they're also being more affected by uh, the crisis. So inequality is growing. Uh, we're going to have to deal with this because otherwise it's going to destroy the social and the political fabric of this country. Uh, we cannot tolerate even higher levels of inequality uh, of, uh, you know, of what we currently have because, as you know, they're already at historical highs, like uh, you know, paralleling what uh, you know, was going on 120 years ago during the so-called Gilded Age, you know, right. when um, 
you know, uh, the Carnegie's and the Mellon's and the Rockefeller's uh, were the, the business uh, giants of the time, right? So I think uh, that, especially from a political point of view, but also from an economic point of view, and that's where I always end all of these, uh, you know, answers with, what is the business case, right, uh, for a different path here? We are in a consumer-oriented economy. So right now, the only thing preventing us from falling off the cliff is the government. Uh, and uh, as you know, people are suffering and we need to use the government resources in a wise way. I'm not saying on a permanent basis, but certainly to take us out of the immediate problem that we find ourselves in. I have sort of a, a double question here. First of all, we talk about having a debate in two, two different forms here. Let's, let, you know, let, let me ask a question that I don't know if you want to answer it or not, but I hope you do. Um, I don't see a debate in the country really, right? Um, first of all, I think uh, I don't think we have the intellectual uh, the intellectual input on the side of the presidents, and, and you know it's not even only the president. It's a president has an an unintellectual team, a team that's not based on on numbers. That's how that's how I see it. That's how many people see it. You can't have a debate if you don't have if you don't have with what to debate is that what people in your domain see at all i mean you're the you're at one of the premier business schools in the country Absolutely. i don't see how donald trump is taken seriously where he went so absolutely look Alberto. i think uh, there were two key messages coming out of the republican convention last week the first is that there's no platform they didn't approve they didn't pass a platform as you know and a platform is essentially a set of uh you know goals uh, that the uh, candidate would like to pursue if re-elected in this case to office and a series of policies that will help the country move towards those goals. That's absent. That's the first point. And then I think uh, very importantly as well, uh, the second uh, message that came out of uh, that uh, uh, convention, the Republican convention, was that this is all about uh, Donald Trump and it's all about whether he can be re-elected. And as you know, for presidents, it's very important, you know, in terms of their historical legacy to be reelected because that's kind of a validation of what they right. accomplished in the first term. Now, obviously, the pandemic has changed uh, every conceivable calculation, uh, right? I mean, Trump uh, did have certain accomplishments, uh, let's say, as of the month of February, that he could use, right? I'm not saying that we would agree with it, mm -hmm. but that he could use to make the case for a second term. And the pandemic, and I think also the uh, racial uh, injustice issue that has become so prominent right now for a good reason uh, has also essentially redrawn the whole uh, situation. So you're right, uh, at some level, there's no debate because one side here in this uh, campaign is refusing to have a debate about ideas, about what kind of a society, what kind of an economy we want to have. I'm completely with you on that. I think uh, from that point of view, we really don't have a debate. Uh, and we should have a debate. So let me amend what I said earlier by saying that the situation right now calls for a debate. We should be having a debate about the role of the government, about what we uh, want to do with this country uh, and uh, how we want to get there. Now, you're, you're a professor at a, a business school. You're an MBA as well, among other things. You're an economist. Now, one of the things that I've always argued with uh, econ with economists with Western economists about basically is a statement that I heard you make as well, which is what you always think whenever you 
whenever you ask questions, you always think about business. Elaborate on that for me, because I have a different take on that. And I'd like to, I, mean, I, I am so impressed with what, just the table of contents of 2030. I, I really am. I, I am fascinated by somebody who put up all those subjects together in that form in one book. So I, I, again, I want to ask, why did you say uh, whenever you're looking at problems, you always think business? Uh, there are several ways of making the case, right? That we need to move forward in a way that is different from what has been done in the recent past in this country. So you can make a political case. And I think the political case, the main argument there should be um, the levels of inequality that we have uh, in this society right now are not good. They're not good for many reasons, okay? So that I think is the political case uh, to be made. Uh, but there's always also a business case that one can make. Uh, and I think uh, what makes an argument uh, particularly powerful is if you can end up in the same place, meaning recommending the same kinds of uh, actions, whether you make the political case or you make the business case. So I think uh, the two are um, most of the time things that can reinforce each other. And that to the extent that uh, they reinforce each other, then we can move forward more quickly, right? So I don't see them as being incompatible with one another. Although I should say there are some politicians who try to pass legislation or executive actions uh, that benefit business, but don't benefit uh, the common people. And we're seeing that, by the way, with the enormous bifurcation that we see right now between Wall Street and Main Street. So, so the stock market is doing really great, but obviously people are suffering. We have high unemployment and we have people who are going hungry, uh, you know, which is uh, in this country, in the United States, it's, it's just astonishing to realize that we have children going hungry. Uh, so for me, as a business school professor, but also somebody as a sociologist who cares about society, I think uh, the best is when we can coordinate the political case and the business case, right? That's when things uh, actually happen. And that's when I think we can um, you know, implement change that helps a majority of the population. I think that is actually a great uh, clarification because, I mean, you weren't put in business first, you're, you're put in business in parallel, which is something, uh, my tenet is that uh, we, we think about uh, what the system that we, we want, we think about how we want humans to live, and then we create a business model around that. Is that is that Congress with your idea? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, let me take the argument one step further, which is when, when when people hear the word business, they think about large companies. They think about, uh, well, right now about big tech, right? Mm -hmm. Which of course they're doing extremely well. Right. Um, but you know, there's a lot of uh, ordinary people in the United States who are business people. Right. And have small businesses. And as you know, they have been devastated by this pandemic, especially among minority communities. So I think uh, the business case at the end of the day should be something that benefits obviously not just the large corporations, but also all of those, uh, you know, in many cases, uh, mom and pop, uh, so-called mom and pop stores or shops, uh, they are really the foundation of the economy. Uh, and they exist in the service sector, in the manufacturing sector, and also in agriculture. And that's what we need to nurture, right? 
Uh, so that's, uh, I think, a very, very important reminder, which is that think about business as including all of these people Excellent. who are engaged yeah. in business. And of course, they're employees, right? And at the end of the day, we're all employees, uh, or most of us are employees of, uh, of some kind of a business, sometimes large, sometimes small. But our own welfare as employees and as consumers, accordingly, depends on those businesses doing well. Excellent. Okay. That that's a kind of answer I think we should hear from a lot more MBAs when we're watching CNBC or MSNBC. It's the answer we never get. So um, you know, thank you for that. Um, now, uh, Professor Guillen, what I want to do real quickly though, because we're running on time, but I but I think I, I, I like I told you about the table of contents. What I want to do is go through that table of contents real quickly for you to kind of give a synopsis of each of these because they, I think they're going to, just that alone is going to be enlightening. The name of the book is 2030, okay. How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. So why I do we it. need to follow the babies? So follow the babies means if you want to figure out what the future is going to look like, think about the babies who are being born today. You see a third of the consumers that the world is going to have by the year 2030 have already been born. So if you understand wow. those babies, how well educated they may be, what kinds of jobs they may have, and so on and so forth, then that provides you with a window into the future. That's a why I call indicator. that chapter, follow the babies. A leading indicator. Exactly. <laughs> All right, gray is, gray is the new black. I thought, I thought I, there was something else. What are you talking about? So gray is the population above the age of 60. Mm -hmm. And uh, Egberto, something really important is about to happen. I mentioned earlier, we're gonna have more grandparents than grandchildren. For the first time in the US, also in Europe and in Japan and in China, the largest consumer group is gonna be the population above age 60. Wow. And this is going to change everything. You see, there are many brands, for instance, that won't have certain kinds of products in their stores because they don't want people above the age of 60 to show up. They think that would be bad for their brand image. Right. All of that is gonna to have to change. Because yes. gray is the new black, is the yes. new uh, fast-growing segment of the market. And remember, Egberto, this is good news. We're living longer and longer and longer. So yes. this change is here with us to stay. And you know what? I know what this one is, but I, I want to see how you're going to say this. Keeping up with the sings and the wangs. So this is all about the middle class. Yes. Unfortunately, in Europe, here in the United States, the middle class is stagnant. For the last hundred years, all of us in the middle class have been trying to keep up with the Joneses. Right. right? That was the old saying. Yes. Well, from now on, the, 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 the name of the game is let's keep up with the Chinese and the Indian middle class. Yes. They're going to yes. become the largest markets. And you see, there's something really important about which country in the world has the largest consumer market, which is that the largest consumer market sets the rules of the game, right? Regulation marketing, all of those things revolve around the largest market in the world. And within about uh, 10 years or so, the Chinese consumer market will be the largest. And then 20 or 25 years after that, the Indian consumer market yes. will become the largest. So we're going to have to learn how to live in that type of world. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, absolutely nothing. It's just different, right? It's just different. Uh, yes. But we need to change our mindset because I think uh, here in the United States, although both of us are immigrants, I think... Uh, we have now learned to uh, uh, internalize that mindset. Of course. is the mindset of uh, the U.S. being number one. Uh, right. Well, when it comes to consumption, we're not going to be number one after the year 2030. And that is something that we need to adjust to. 
It's, and, and some people are having a hard time adjusting to it. Second sex, no more. Question mark, right? Yes. Uh, so this is the idea that women, as we all know, are making a lot of progress with their careers. More than half of college graduates in the U.S. now are women. Now, this is not to say that every woman in the United States or in the world uh, is uh, doing better. Uh, but we're seeing, for example, something really important, which is that a little bit before 2030, more than half of the wealth in the world will be owned by women. That's great. And Egberto, let me tell you, women are different than us. Yes. They make decisions in a different way. They are more risk averse on average. So if they have more money, I think that's going to change consumer markets. It's going to change financial markets. Interestingly, also with this pandemic, the countries led by women are doing much better than the countries led by men. Absolutely. And New Zealand is uh, almost always proposed as the, uh, as the best example of that. Yes, yes. She is very good she, and young. She's young and she's good. Uh, cities drown first. So this is uh, all about how we have misunderstood the potential problems that big cities have. You see, cities occupy 1% of the land in the world. They're home to about 55% of the population and it's growing very quickly. Right. But they account for 80% of the carbon emissions. So even before this pandemic, cities were problematic because they tend to abuse the environment. Right. You see? And we need to rethink cities. We need to uh, work towards a new urban environment, especially if we want to arrest, to uh, bring to an end the problem of uh, climate change. More cell phones than toilets? So this is mostly about South Asia and Africa, you see. <laughs> Talking about priorities. People prefer to be connected 24-7 with a cell phone or with a mobile phone than to have um, a uh, home, right, uh, in which there's a connection to the sewer, and right. therefore you can have a toilet. I think this uh, speaks volumes, this chapter about how interconnectivity has become the single most important thing that people want to have in life, with all of the positive and negative consequences, of course. Now, this is interesting because we've talked about the rent economy and a whole lot of other things before. You're talking about, imagine, no possessions. Right. So that, uh, that's uh, a verse in John Lennon's uh, famous song, Imagine. Yes. And the idea here is that I actually believe, I'm a true believer in that the sharing economy may help us overcome the environmental crisis. Uh, and let me give you an example. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, we waste a third of the food here in the United States. We let it go bad in our refrigerators. Mm -hmm. We never use it. Um, if we had a sharing platform that worked for everyone for food, we would, first of all, reduce carbon emissions because the agricultural sector is the biggest uh, part of the economy in terms of uh, carbon emissions. But secondly, we would be able to feed every American. Remember, there's right. a lot of um, children who go hungry to school, or these days they stay at home and they go hungry. And uh, this is unacceptable. So I think we should be uh, sharing more, and that would include food, clothing, many other things. Now, more currencies than countries. Now, that one is a sort of a, I don't know, tell me. So uh, when uh, people hear those words, more currencies than countries, they immediately think about Bitcoin. Right. And you see, I advance the argument in the book that I don't think we're going to see Bitcoin become uh, a leading currency in the world because governments don't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, they see it as a competitor. 
So I think uh, we need to broaden the concept of cryptocurrency. If cryptocurrencies or digital tokens are just a substitute for money, I don't think they're going to be tolerated by governments. But we could add other things to digital tokens, like incentives, for example, to be more environmentally conscious. Or we could uh, track with them the provenance of the goods that we purchase. Or we could vote with them. So I think the future is digital tokens rather than cryptocurrencies themselves, with those tokens actually including a cryptocurrency. Professor Guillen, you are in fact a thinker. Uh, not only that, but you also think outside of the box. I have been very impressed. You know, there are not very many MBAs that impress me at all. I've been very impressed uh, with you, uh, Professor. Thank you so kindly for having been with uh, Politics Done Right. But before I close, I want to ask you to tell us something that you wished I had asked you that you want to get out there in the ethos. I think uh, perhaps the question that I always like to answer, Egberto, and that you've asked uh, me like uh, really important questions is, what am I supposed to do? Okay, so all of these things are changing. Okay, the year 2030 will be uh, very different uh, from uh, what we experience as life today. And my advice to that, which is in the uh, last few pages in the book is, look, in the midst of all of this change, never make a decision that is irreversible, okay? So don't succumb to the extremes of not doing anything or changing everything all at once, okay? You have to find a happy medium. And that happy medium should be guided a bit by the principle that you should never, never, ever close the doors behind you. You should always make sure that whatever decision you make, you can reverse it. Because in the midst of so much change, maybe the assumptions that you made while you were making that decision will be correct today, but wrong tomorrow. The name of the book, 2030, how today's biggest trends will collide and reshape the future of everything. Professor Mauro Guillen, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Egberto, thank you so much for having me. It's Absolutely. A, truly a pleasure. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. Please do remember that uh, we, uh, that we do need your support to keep these programs on. And let me go ahead and provide you, you see that book on the screen, It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. Please consider going uh, to Amazon and get that book. I'm gonna put the direct link in there as well. If you take a look at the screen, you'll see that we, uh, let me go ahead and put that in first of all. Uh, you'll see I have a new book. There it is, it's worth it. That's the book that, that we have there. Uh, those of you who are on YouTube, please become a member of our posse by just clicking on that link that says join. So join our posse right now. And if you get on actually right now, I'll, I'll give you a shout out. But uh, you, if you're not on YouTube uh, right now watching us, if you're on, on, on Periscope or Twitch or Facebook, you can simply go to this following link, which is uh, politicsunright.com slash YouTube, politicsunright.com slash YouTube. And that way you can actually get onto our, become a part of our YouTube posse. Uh, we also enjoy having our patrons. There are many people who support us via this particular network, which is called uh, Patreon. And here's the link, link to it, politicsunright.com slash Patreon, politicsunright.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Alternatively, you can uh, support us via PayPal, which is politicsdoneright.com slash PayPal, politicsdoneright.com slash 
PayPal, thank you, be, thank you for having been a, a, uh, a patron for quite a while with us, Michael Rudden. You are an asset to politics done right, like, like, like many that we have that come out here, participate, help us educate, help us, you know, thank you so kindly for all that you all do. But again, if you are new on YouTube and haven't yet signed up, click that join button or click that one of the links that we presented there, or go ahead and get one of our books. As I see it, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right Wing Doom is one of my books that you'll find at uh, Amazon, as well as It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right Wing Relatives, Friends and Neighbors. Okay, let me kind of go through some of these things. Michael Rudnan made a very important point about productivity that uh, Professor Guillen talks about. Uh, we know that productivity is increasing and as productivity increases, you need less employees. Either you need less employees or you have to have a large increase in consumption to create more demand, which gets more people employed. Now, creating all this demand, depending on the kind of demand that demands that get created, can actually be devastating to the... Uh, uh, to the thank you for being a patron as well, my, my, my friend Bridge MCP. Uh, that's all right. I all levels of patrons. I love all. I love all my folks. I don't care. Look, the thing about it is, as a family working together to get all this stuff done. Let me let me tell you now. As far as going back to what um, Brother Rudnan had to say, as productivity increases, if we don't have a, rel a, a increase in demand above that of productivity, we also need less employees and less employees mean an increased unemployment or we could talk about a reduced work week with uh, with the same type of salaries to ensure that you know we, we can actually keep the, the economy going but Michael Rudden talks about something that we should always take into account and that is the profits from increased productivity should be reinvested right back into the people maybe a a, a stipend for everybody known as UBI, a universal basic income. I believe wholeheartedly in universal basic income. Everybody gets a check from the government, from society, from what we've all done together to create a society. It's not welfare. It's not a giveaway. It is just the engines. It's just the, the, the grease to keep society moving, to keep the economy moving. That is what it's all about. Now, I, I find it ironic for those people who would complain about things like UBI they will not have a problem with a stockbroker selling a stock and making 10% of on the sale or, 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 you know, somebody that's sitting down on their butt doing nothing and making money on the stock market, which is nothing more than working off the backs of others, right? In other words, if somebody sells a stock because it price went up because the company had better productivity or sold more product, that person who made that profit on that stock is making it off of your back. It's, it, he is the freeloader. He is the freeloader, the stockbroker, the, 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 the executives, they are the freeloaders in society. If you honestly look at what you have done for the money you have gotten, the biggest freeloaders are the millionaires who sit down and have other people do the work. Those are the freeloaders in society. And once we, once we change our mode of thinking, remember they had to teach us that there was something special in executives and stockholders and so forth that made them special. No. Is Donald Trump's kids special? Can they make anything? No. But they're, they're quote-unquote rich. Are they deserving? Hell no. So we, one of the most important things we have to learn to do is to change the model in the way people think. UBI requires zero risk. Stocks, not so much. No, that's crap. 
Uh, that is in that is what you were indoctrinated into believing, Mr. Lido. A person who works for the person who owns the stock. I love to see when they say, oh, the stock broker has taken the risk with his money. Or rather, the, the investor has taken the risk with his money. And then that guy who is building uh, Hoover Dam, he says, yes, and the stock broker has taken risk with his money created by somebody else while I take the risk with my body. That guy who works in the refinery and inhales all those car carbides. You know, he is risking his health while the guy who's sitting down in the tower in Houston, Texas, breathing nice, clean air. What has he risked? Nothing but his money. The other guy risked his life. We have allowed the Powell Manifesto to teach us something about economics that is all wrong. The people who make the economy roll or you all. So we are coming to the end of this program. Thank you so kindly for having been here. Uh, you know how I end this program. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this. I am what? Let me find that correctly. Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.